Hey, what a great day. Glad Jonathan's still here. We've been, we've been waiting for him to leave for a long time, and I am so glad that it got delayed. I mean, Craig and Shirley may be ready for an empty house, but I'm not really ready for an empty office yet. Um, I can't believe this day is finally here. Um, and I'm so excited for Jonathan, even though I said a bad thing about Arizona a few months ago, like living there is like hell on earth. But um, anyway, we, man, we love you guys so much and are really going to miss you, but really excited about what God is doing. And Aramias, man, thank you so much for sharing. One of the things for us to remember is that all the things that Aramias is doing, we are doing. Because we're financially supporting him. We are encouraging him. We are helping him. And, uh, you know, I hear he needs a van. We should think about how we can take care of that. Um, You know, I just think about a missionary out there on the front lines. um, Having people that work with him who are killed for doing what God has called them to do. And uh, I just think, you know. Whatever people need in that situation, we should give them. So we'll talk about that later. Um, But anyway, I just am very thankful for you and for what you do. Our passage this morning, our title is Transformed. It is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And uh, just so you know, this passage is illegal for people to teach on in Canada. If in the United States, you communicate as a counselor... If you communicate the content of this passage, you will lose your license as a a counselor. Um, This is something that you are not allowed to say to people. And one of the things that I think about is everything in God's word is powerful, it is true, it is critical. And when Satan, through our culture, picks a passage and says, you cannot say this, When that happens, we should take a step back and think about the content of that passage. Um, That's critical. It's important. This passage is not more important than other passages in the Bible, but it is critical. And, And Satan, through our culture, has taken aim at it. And as a church, it is very important that we as Christians and that as a church that we don't take a step back And that we don't say, okay, if I'm going to be punished for saying this, I won't say it. So they did this survey uh, with this college group, and they went through neighborhoods. And one of the things that they said is, is they wanted to do a survey to see what motivates people. And so they hung a bunch of flyers on people's doors that said about electrical usage. And they were just saying, if you could turn off your... AC and, your, and reduce your power from this time to this time, it'll save you money. And then that was one test. The other one was, um, we need to preserve our environment. We need to, we need to make our, 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 our world last better. So if you turn your power off from this time to this time, you can save the environment. You could be a good person. You could do these moral things. And then the third one is they said, all your neighbors are turning off their power between this time and this time. Join the group. Be part of the crowd. Did you know that nobody turned off their power to save money? (laughs) Did you know that nobody turned off their power to preserve the environment? 
but you want to know what had a huge influence? All your neighbors are doing. There is legal pressure. There's all kinds of pressure that we face, but social pressure is powerful. And that is something that we face in the United States. We hear it on the news. We, we see it and hear it from people around us. And as believers, we do not take our cues from culture. We read what the Bible says. We do what the Bible says. Because that's what God is calling us to do. And as believers, that's what we do. Um, one of the things we need to understand when, it, when we think about what it means to be a Christian, um, I want to just say this passage. This is Titus 2.11, and it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace, we are saved through grace. Um, Ephesians 2.8.9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. But this verse goes on to say that the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you know that the same grace that saves you, transforms you, makes you a new person? And that is the message that Christians are not allowed to tell in this culture. If you are struggling with sin, God can change you. And here's the deal. There's a list of things we could say that are allowed to be said. If you are a swindler, if you are a um, thief, we're, not, we're allowed to say that God can change you from that. But if you struggle with homosexuality, if you are struggling with your gender, you are not allowed to tell people that God can help them. So we're going to look at this passage. We're going to dig into it. And I want to just read it. And I need to clarify something from last week. Because uh, some of what I said I think was confusing. <laughs> You'll find out why in a second. Let's just read this passage. 1 Corinthians 6.1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you and you are incompetent to try trivial cases... Do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than the matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle um, a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So the message last week was don't sue other Christians. We resolve our issues and we would rather be wrong than to sue a brother or sister in Christ and to take that issue before unbelievers for judgment. That's already a defeat. So we don't sue unbelievers. But the thing, this is what I want to clarify. 
This doesn't say that as Christians we're not under the law or that we don't make use of the law. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 through 4 says God has ordained the government um, and that we do function in the law. So this is not saying Christians are outside of the law. The point of this passage is that we don't settle our personal disputes with people in, in a, a court with unbelievers. We don't do that. But that does not mean that if somebody commits a crime, you don't call the police. It does not mean that if somebody embezzled money from the church that we wouldn't turn them into the law enforcement. It does not mean that when a woman calls me and says, hey, my husband punched me and I'm afraid, um, one of the first things I say is, are you safe? And the second thing I say is, have you called the police? Um, it does not mean that if somebody molests a kid that we handle that in-house. Our, our second, you know, a, a family called me some years ago and the, and the wife told me that her, her husband was molesting her kids. And then she said, but I don't want to call the police. And I just told her, I said, I just want you to know that, that I love you, I'm praying for you, and as a church, we're going to come alongside your family and help you. But when I hang up the phone, my next phone call is to the police. And, and I did that, and within an hour, this man was in jail. And so this is... Uh, there are divorces where we have to legally define relationships where there's custody disputes and things like that that have to be processed in the court. And so we're not outside of the court. But if I sell you a car and uh, you don't give me all the money, I am not going to court to sue you if you are a brother in Christ. And so this has to do with settling personal disputes. disputes. So anyway... I didn't emphasize all that stuff last week, <laughs> so a little extra this week. Now let's go on to our passage for this morning, which actually is a part of that. Paul is, is drawing this contrast between believers and unbelievers. And now he's going to say something incredibly powerful. He is going to say that God changes people, that, that we are new creatures in Christ. Let me read the rest of this. In verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, this passage is powerful and it provides incredible hope. The message of this passage is no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you are struggling with, no matter where you have been, God can save you and transform you. That's a powerful message. That is part of the gospel. He's saying that people who live in these kind of sinful ways don't go to heaven. And then he does, it, but one of the things I love is he's not painting this picture of if you're in the church, then we're all good people, and, and all these other people out there who have these struggle, sin struggles, they're bad. And so we're good in here against the bad people out there. This passage is not about us and them. This passage is saying that the them is us. 
And what God has done for us, he can do for others. And we can go and we have a message of hope, of reconciliation, of salvation. And that is something Satan does not want proclaimed. Uh, he does not want people pursued for salvation. He does not want people who have incredible struggles to know that there is hope for them. And that's the message that we must deliver. And the message of the gospel does not apply to every sin unless you're struggling with your gender. It does not apply to every sin unless you have same-sex attraction. That is not true. Um, those sins are just like every sin. And first of all, they are sins. But they are sins like every other sin. And so let's jump in here and let's think about it. This is my favorite verse. And uh, from the time I was young, I used to share this verse. And part of the reason for that is that in my life before I was a Christian, I struggled with serious, significant things. I did things that were really bad. And one of the most blessed things for me when I became a Christian was to think about those things that I wish I could hit delete on in my life. I wish I could remove them from my soul. I wish I could remove them from my memory. But being able to realize that in Christ, the delete button got hit on who I used to be and that I was a new person and that in a real way I could say, that wasn't me. Now in one sense, it was me. <laughs> and I still remember all that stuff. But in another sense, from a spiritual perspective, that is not me. This is what this verse says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So let's jump in here. And let's look at verse 9 and 10. And here's the first thing. Sin defines unbelievers who will be separated from God. Sin defines them. It is how they live. That's what it says. Or do you not know? Now, four times in these two verses, Paul emphasizes the significance of this. And he says, or do you not know? In other words, you should know this. And he's saying to them, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he's going to say that again. He's going to say, don't be deceived. That's, that, that, that equals don't you know. This is a lie Satan is telling. And when you go to church, and in your church, or when you like look around in the culture, and people are so deceived because they are told, no, you can live a sinful, wicked life. You can live out rebellion against God, and you're okay. No, you're not. Do you not know? Do not be deceived. This is the lie that Satan is telling. That you will not, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then we have this list. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Why is Paul going to a church and emphasizing who doesn't go to heaven. 
Because people need to know that they're lost. And we need to understand that people need the gospel. They need forgiveness. They need spiritual transformation. And if they don't have it, they are in trouble. When we're hanging out with our friends and we're, when we're thinking about our family, whatever their sin issue is, is not the biggest thing in their life. Oh, my kid doesn't do his homework. we got to fix his homework. Or, or somebody's like, whatever their problems are, are not the most significant thing. Now, those things reflect salvation, but whether or not a person knows the Lord is the most critical thing. I've heard Christians at times talk about non-Christian family members and friends and people that they love. Sometimes they're in the hospital, they're struggling, they've got cancer, they're in pain and agony, and then they pass away. And I hear people say things like, they're so much better off, now they're not in pain. And the thing that we need to understand is that salvation is of utmost importance. And when a person is writhing in pain at the end of their life, and they die, and they are not a Christian, things don't get better. They get worse. And everybody's absolute need is to know the Lord. And it says something about us when we talk that way and when we think that way. One of the most amazing things to me is that people become Christians. And the moment they become a Christian, their greatest concern is the salvation and the eternal destiny of the people around them. They share the gospel with their kids. They want to share the gospel with their friends. That becomes their biggest priority. And it's like it's weird. Well, I guess it's not weird, but you don't have to teach people to be that way. I found you get, you get a religious person, been in church their whole life, doesn't care about people's salvation. Uh, you see parents who care more about their kids' sports than their kids' walk with the Lord. And then they become a Christian, and nobody has to say, your kid's spiritual condition is more important than sports. It's like a person gets saved, automatically they think that way. You don't have to say to people, hey, um, okay, you're a Christian, but what about your kids? What about your friends? What about your neighbors? It's weird. You don't have to tell people that. It just happens. And one of the things I find is that often, when people are not concerned with the eternal destiny of the people around them, sometimes that is a reflection of their spiritual condition. And they're not worried about it because they're spiritually blind themselves. So he's emphasizing these are people who don't go to heaven. And he's saying, don't be deceived. That should be obvious. And then he says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, in Romans chapter 1, it talks about people hardening their heart, rebelling against God. And then it lists 27 or 21 um, expressions of rebellion against God. And in this passage, it talks about people who don't go to heaven. And then he lists nine expressions of rebellion against God. So let's look at this list. He says, sexually immoral. By the way, he doesn't say if a person is sexually immoral one time, they don't go to heaven. Like, this is not a list of sin instances. This is a list of a lifestyle. 
It is when you are characterized by sin. And the Bible's very clear that Christians struggle with sin. Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 7 where he says, man, my flesh, I find myself doing things that I don't want to do. But this is saying that when this characterizes your life, you are not a believer. And so let's just talk about what these things are. The sexually immoral, that's a general word, word for sexually, sexual immorality. It's translated sometimes fornication. It is any sexual activity outside of marriage. So if you are um, engaging in sexual immorality with a person that you are not married to, that is what this is talking about. It includes all kinds of sexual immorality, so it's a general word. So people who live that way, people who live that way are not Christians. Um, let's go to the next one idolaters. You know, um, the whole Old Testament was, was emphasizing that we don't worship idols, right? I mean, that was Israel's biggest problem. Um, in Israel, anybody who worshiped an idol would be killed. And so idolatry, that's replacing God with anything else or bringing anything else up to God's level. Let me just throw out, there's a lot of different ways that happens. That's like horoscopes. If you know your sign, that doesn't mean you're going to hell if you know your sign. <laughs> But if you think about life in terms of your sign and you think, well, my personality is this way because this is my sign, that's saying that the stars and the time of year that you were born and what was facing up in the air when you were born determines who you are. As Christians, we have nothing to do with that. Like tarot cards, palm readers. I mean, in Mission Viejo, right down the street from my house, every time I go to the doctor, I, go, I drive past this building of like a palm reader that will tell people their future. Like we live in the United States. This is not like some weird crazy place, but there's palm readers here. And one of the things I think to myself is, is these people are actually in business. Like somebody pays them enough money to pay their rent. Like it's insane. And you would expect that of, like, if you have some evolutionary mindset or you you're kind of have, like, a bad view of people, you could go, well, that would happen in some jungle somewhere with superstitious people. No, it happens everywhere with everyone. All that stuff is idolatry. It is worshiping an image. You know, this happens when I go into Thai food restaurants. There's a little Buddha, and they put rice there. And one of the things I used to do is, is I used to always go to this Thai food restaurant when I was in college, and me and my friends, we all were praying for the lady who owned it. And I would have conversations with her. And I used to, I used to, I, I would ask her. She had symbols on the door. And I would say, what is that? And it was like a God that would bring back good customers. <laughs> I thought about not going back because I realized I'm a good customer. And every time I go back, she thinks it's because of the God she's wor worshiping. And, and, the, and I, so I would just talk to her about things. But I remember she had this Buddha and she would put some rice and food in front of him. And one of the things I said to her was, um, how come he never eats it? <laughs> people are still um, worshiping images. Um, how about people who carry around saints? Uh, this, this is a little saint, and, and this is the saint of policemen, or this is the saint of this kind of person. That's idolatry. It's satanic, and God hates it. Um, so people still do idol worship. Uh, when I was a kid, everybody carried around a rabbit's foot. That's not politically correct anymore, and it was kind of gross even back then. 
But you know, idolatry is also exalting um, yourself over everything else. Let me, I'm just going to read you Colossians 3, 5. The Bible says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So idolatry is when you say, God, I don't care what you think. I don't care about pleasing you. I care about doing what I want. That is idolatry. Um, adulterers. Adulterers don't go to heaven either. Um, adultery is combining sexual immorality with breaking your marriage covenant. So it's one thing when you're not married and you're sexually active. You do that, you're not going to heaven. Um, but when you get married and you promise yourself to another person, you promise yourself um, to be faithful to them, and then you go break that covenant with your sexual immorality, that's adultery. And God says, people who live that way don't go to heaven. Men who practice homosexuality. Um, I've got to do something here. See if I can. Men who practice homosexuality. This, this is a challenge. There's all kinds of things that are said about this. I, I, since I've been at this church, have sat with people uh, who want to um, deny this passage. And I just want to tell you that this word for homosexuality it has been aimed at by churches. There are people who redefine this passage who want to try to argue that the Bible doesn't say homosexuality is wrong. So um, just a little bit about this passage. Um, the first thing is that men who practice homosexuality, um, some Bible translations translate that with two words, and they'll say the effeminate or homosexuals. There's actually two words there. And so in our, in, our transfer, in our translation, they're combining those words because one interpretation is that that's talking about the passive and active person in a homosexual relationship. And so it's, it's just so they, they translate that as men who practice homosexuality. But there's actually two words. I'm going to show you that. But here's the first thing. The Bible is not unclear about whether or not homosexuality is wrong. It's, it's not hard to figure that out. Um, in Deuteronomy, or I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, it says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So the Bible says that in the Old Testament. And we think that, oh, our culture struggles with this. No. When Paul wrote this during the Roman Empire, th there's not a single problem we have today that they didn't have, and that wasn't worse then than it is today. Um, Deuteronomy 22.5 says, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. God makes men and God makes women. And we are not defined by how we feel. We are defined by what God says we are. And so if you have a little kid who's growing up and, and they, they're, they're a little boy and they say, man, I, I feel like a girl and I want to play with dolls. First of all, there's nothing wrong with playing with dolls. That's one of the things I loved growing up in my house. If I wanted to play with Barbie dolls with my sister, I never got any trouble for that. I played with Barbie dolls with my sister. If my sisters wanted to play boy games, they played boy games. My dad, dad taught me to change the brakes in the car, and he taught my sisters to change the brakes in the car. 
um, my sisters all knew who to wash, knew how to wash the dishes. But guess who was the best dishwasher in our house? Was my dad. Um, my dad like changed diapers. He took care of kids. So he didn't have this weird thing, and we don't have to be that way. That's not define what defines who you are. And if you're struggling with your gender, that happens. I want you to know something. One of the things Paul's saying that he's emphasizing is this is not about somebody else, this is about us. I want you to know that there are people in this church who, as kids, struggled with their gender. And as they were growing up, they learned that God defines who we are. They were able to talk about whatever their struggles were. They received guidance. They received help. Um, and, and their parents framed things for them biblically. And if you were trying to walk around this church and pick the person who struggled with their gender, you would never pick them. It doesn't seem like they have a problem at all. But they were that way. And they were taught to think biblically about themselves. They were not shamed. They were not told you're not allowed to say this. You're not allowed to struggle with this. They were just loved and helped to think about themselves the way God says to think about themselves. And you would say they're a very well-adjusted, normal person, and you'd never guess they had that struggle. But we have a culture that want to take, wants to take people who are struggling with their gender and give them drugs and do surgery and change them physically when they're kids, when they can't even think that, don't even know how to think about life. And that is Satan wants to destroy people in that way. A friend of mine, about 10 years ago, this woman comes to his church, ends up becoming a Christian, and shortly after sits in his office and just says, okay, so um, I was born a man, and I've done surgery, and I've changed my body. There are things I've done that are irreversible. And I want to honor the Lord and I want to follow the Lord, but I'm actually not sure what to do. Like, what do I do now? Do I go to the women's retreat or the men's retreat? Do I use the women's bathroom or the men's bathroom? Like, what do I do now that I've modified myself? And to see that church, love that person, come alongside them, help them sort out, okay, then what do you do? And I'll tell you what they didn't do. They didn't say, live a lie. Uh, continue living in a way that's different than what God made you. They helped this man figure out how to honor the Lord in his, certain, uh, in his circumstances. They didn't say, yeah, well, now it's too late. Go to the women's retreat and use the women's restroom. That's not what they said. They said, you need to think and embrace what God has said about you. And so the Bible's not unclear. This isn't about can a woman wear jeans and can a man wear a dress. If wearing a dress communicates that you're a woman and you're a man, then you can't wear a dress. But if you're from Scotland, <laughs> wearing skirts doesn't mean you're a woman, so you can wear a skirt if you're from Scotland. It's not about the clothes. It's about are you identifying and functioning the way God says you're supposed to identify and function. Um, <clears throat> on the whole issue of homosexuality, the Bible's not unclear about whether or not same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior is what God intends. God does not intend that. Um, 
uh, it says in uh, Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a woman. It is an abomination. And so here's the, the word that, that Paul uses for homosexual in this passage. Nobody really used until Paul used it. So they look through church history and they look through culture and they just go, nobody used this word. Now, after Paul used it, people used it for homosexuality. And so what people say, they'll say this word is mistranslated. That is not what it means. We don't really know what it means. And what I want you to know, there is no question what this word means. And Paul, when he writes this, is specifically quoting um, Leviticus 18.22. And it also, uh, there's another passage that says it too. And I know that you guys are not Greek and Hebrew people, and I don't usually do stuff like this. But I just want to show it to you, because I don't, I don't actually think you have to know Greek and Hebrew for this to make sense to you. So I threw up some words, and I threw up kind of my translation of these words, and so I'm going to read it to you, I'm going to show it to you, and I want to point something out to you. Okay, so um, Leviticus 18.22, that's, uh, I put the first half of the verse in Hebrew, and I just put the English words over the top. And so with Hebrew, you, you read uh, right to left, so you got to start on the wrong side. And so it says, and with, that is the first word that's up against the side. Then there's a little dash in that word, and that next word is amen. So it says, and with a man, not, you shall lie, and then bed of a woman. And that word for bed of is a euphemism for sexual activity. So it just says, with a man, not you shall bed or have sexual relationships as you would with a woman. So that's, it, you know, Hebrew doesn't go exactly into English, so we supply some words to make sense, but that's what it says. Now, if you look at the Greek translation of that, you'll see it, um, and it just says this, and with a man, not, you shall lie, bed of a woman. It's exactly the same as the Hebrew. Now, when you look at the Greek words there, um, they kind of look like English letters. They're kind of similar. But if you look at it, you'll notice that the third word where it says amen, I highlighted it. And then it goes on, not, you shall lie. And then there's the Greek word for the bed of, or that euphemism for sexual activity, as with a woman. You want to know what Paul did? He took those two words, amen, and sexual activity, and he put them together. Even if you don't read Greek, look at the letters. Do you, can you see that those two words... Paul put into one word. This is not confusing. Paul was citing the Old Testament when he said this. So anyway, I just figured I'd show that to you, even though you don't read Greek and Hebrew. I went back and forth as to whether or not I should do that, and it crashed the PowerPoint. I had to remake it this morning because it had trouble with the fonts. You know, this is the other thing about this whole issue is that uh, the Bible doesn't just use words to describe homosexuality. The Bible also just describes it with sentences and a paragraph. Look at this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged the natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And men, excuse me, the, the, for those... <clears throat> that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up the natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts 
with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. This is not just about men, it is also about women. And what is a natural relationship? It is defined right here. Natural is not how I feel. If I feel attracted this way, that's what's natural for me. No, natural is defined. Men with women is natural. Women with men is natural. A woman with a woman is not natural. A man with a man is not natural. And so it's defined. It's not confusing. And so as we continue on just with this list, um, we have to be really clear about that. So um, neither effeminate nor homosexuals um, goes on, and it says nor thieves. That's taking something that doesn't belong to you by force. It's not just sneaking into somebody's house and taking something. It's like carjacking somebody. Not to say that stealing is okay. I'm just emphasizing what's being listed here. Covetousness. That's desiring something that you shouldn't have. Drunkards. A drunkard is a person who's regularly intoxicated, addicted to alcohol, controlled by alcohol. It's a person who has a regular uh, practice of being intoxicated. Revilers. That's a person who's abusive in their speech. One who destroys others with their words. Swindlers. That's somebody who tricks somebody into giving something that belongs to them. Isn't it interesting that uh, you're... (laughs) We're allowed to tell swindlers they can change, but you can't tell people who are struggling with other kinds of issues that they can change. No, God God can transform anybody. It does not matter what your sin struggle is. You can change. God can change you. Now, the second thing that's really important for us to understand, and I'm going to ask the PowerPoint folks, can you follow me on the PowerPoint? had a little technical malfunction here, so I'm having a hard time doing both. So if you guys could take care of that for me. Um, Sin does not define those who have been spiritually transformed by God. This is the amazing thing about the church is that all these things, being a a homosexual prostitute, the church was full of those people. Um, Swindlers, revilers, people that attacked with their words. The Corinthian church was full of people who came out of that and God changed them. And so Paul's just saying... (laughs) Man, God changed you. Hey, did you have these things that you think in your life were unforgivable? They're not unforgivable. I mean, he says to them in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is so amazing and so powerful. The stuff that we've been reading about the Corinthian church, and by the way, the stuff we're going to continue hearing from the Corinthian church, did their sin struggles stop? I mean, some of them were revilers, but guess what was happening in the church? Some reviling was going on. Uh, Have you ever known somebody who in the church speaks to somebody with sharp words? They're very bitter. Whenever you talk to them, you know who they're mad at and what they're mad at them for. You ever see that kind of thing? Well, that was still going on in the Corinthian church. But the apostle looks at them and he says, such were some of you. That that doesn't characterize you anymore. It doesn't mean you don't ever struggle with those sinful things. It's not saying that if you had same-sex attraction and you become a Christian, that that will necessarily go away. I have a very good friend, faithful believer, incredibly overcome with same-sex attraction. And one of the things I always encourage him, he's like, I I can never change. That's never going to change about me. And one of the things I tell him is, that may never change. 
And if you struggle with that for the rest of your life, then you struggle with it for the rest of your life. It's, that's fine. We all struggle with things that don't just go away. But also, you should not think of that as being something impossible to change. God could transform that. He may change that. And there's a book um, written by a, a lady who taught uh, le- uh, women's studies in a college who was living a lesbian life who became a Christian because she had this radio program and some pastor wrote to her and addressed something she said about her lesbianism. And so she got tons of mail and she took, one le- she took all the hate mail and put it on one side and then she took all the affirming mail and put it on the other side. And she got this guy's letter and she's like, that's hate mail. She threw it on the hate mail side. She said, well, no, actually that wasn't hate mail. So she took it out of the hate mail pile and she stuck it in the fan pile. But she's like, no, actually that wasn't fan mail. So she put it in the hate side again. She's like, but it doesn't go there either. And she said she had this letter on her desk and she didn't know what to do with. And since she couldn't get rid of it, she finally called this man. And through her friendship with him, she became a Christian. She is now married and she has kids. And she wrote a book talking about how she went from the homosexual lifestyle into the church. One of the things that really stood out to me in her book, by the way, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. But one of the things she talked about was how loving and encouraging the homosexual community was. And she was just saying that's what the church is actually supposed to be like. And so it just was a really powerful, it was an amazing book. But you know what, in her case, she changed. and I'm, I don't know, like I have not talked to her about if she ever has thoughts or struggles in that area, but God transformed her life, and that is available for any Christian. You know, the Bible tells us this in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we sin, and then we confess it, and God forgives us, and we go on trying to be faithful. It is natural for Christians to obey God. The whole idea that I can become a Christian and still live with somebody I'm not married to. No. The whole idea that I can become a Christian and continue living a a lifestyle of sexual immorality. No. The fact that I can become a Christian and then have a homosexual marriage and live out a homosexual lifestyle. No. Uh, The Bible clearly says that when you live in that way, you are not a Christian. That's what it says in this passage. When you read a verse and you're on it that says you're not going to heaven, that should get your attention. If the people in your life are on that list, that should get your attention. And he just says, such were some of you. That doesn't mean we don't still struggle with sins. doesn't mean we don't fail. But that is not us. And we don't choose that lifestyle. And we don't live that way. Bible says this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
So believers are no longer slaves to sin. You can be changed. You can be transformed. You will be changed and transformed when you come to Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free. So this is what Jesus did for you when you got saved. It says this in verse 11. It says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is so powerful. Washed. Jesus washed you white as snow. He removed your sin. And he didn't do it because you were good enough. He didn't do it because you changed. He did it because of the work of Christ applied to you. You were sanctified. That's why Paul, in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, calls them saints. It means the same thing. Sanctified. You are positionally sanctified. But when you're positionally sanctified, you start growing in practical sanctification. Paul says, I hate this sin, even though I find myself doing it. When you do things that you hate, you will start to quit doing those things. And that's why it's progressive sanctification. You are justified. Uh, Philippians 3.9 says that we may be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. And that happens because of Jesus and it happens because of the Holy Spirit that God puts in our heart. So I want to just ask you, why do we sometimes feel powerless when it comes to dealing with sin in our life? You ever had a bad marriage? <laughs> you ever been fi fighting with your spouse? That's gone on for years, and you're just thinking, I can't, this is never going to change. Um, I can't get away from this. You ever had sin struggles in your life that you just feel like, I can't get away from that? Um, you ever face temptation that feels overwhelming why does that happen because satan's attacking you he is placing temptations in front of you it happens because we make a provision for our flesh why do i always have these immoral thoughts well you're surfing the internet all the time looking at stuff you shouldn't be looking at you're not figuring out how to close the door to things you're making room for sin in your life that keeps you trapped why do I always struggle with bitterness? Because when you're mad at somebody, you justify it. Instead of saying, this is what God says I'm supposed to do, I'm going to make myself do what God says. And so when we make provision for our flesh, it's like it keeps us trapped. And so it's a satanic attack. We make provision for our flesh. We allow worldly thinking to dominate our minds. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. Instead of thinking the way God tells us to think, we think the way the world tells us to think. Um, you know, we fail because sometimes we're so discouraged, we just give up. You ever go, man, I confessed this a hundred times and I'm still struggling. Don't give up. Keep confessing. Eventually, God's going to help you. So we never give up. We're never discouraged. We don't stay home when we blow it. We come to church. We, we don't keep our sin struggles a secret. We tell other people, pray for me. Come help me. If you want to change, you discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That means you start practicing things that are right. 
you start taking your thoughts captive. When you think a sinful thought, you grab that and you say, no, I'm going to think righteously. Um, you start as young as you can, but it is never too late to start. And uh, why does God allow us to struggle with remaining sin? Um, only God knows. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's part of the answer. Why does God let us continue to struggle? But I'll tell you some things I've thought about. It keeps us dependent on the Lord. Every single day we remember we need Jesus. We need what Jesus did. Um, because um, it helps us love God more. Do you remember when the Bible said, he who's forgiven much loves much. He who's forgiven little loves little. So the more you're blowing it, the more you're reminded how much God loves you. Um, because it keeps us humble. You ever look at other people and think they're idiots? But when you're aware of your own sin, it helps you look at other people that are struggling with sin and be humble toward them. It helps us be redemptive in our ministry toward other people. We look at somebody trapped in sin and we know that's bad, that's destructive. I want to help you with it. So, <laughs> there's only three verses, a lot to say about it. Here's the thing to remember people need salvation. There is salvation in Christ, and that is our message. We preach that with love toward people um, who need the Lord. Let me pray. God, thank you for giving us your word. God, thank you for, Lord, just the fact that you love us and forgive us and that no matter how many times we fail, we can be forgiven. Lord, thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that this church would be a humble church that loves you, a faithful church. Lord, when we see people living in rebellion against you, God, help us not to lie to ourselves and say they're saved. Lord, help us to encourage them to pray for their salvation, to look for opportunities to share the gospel and to talk to them about where, they at, where they're at in their relationship with you. And God, I pray that you would save the people in our lives that we know the same way that you saved us in your name. Amen.